0: Welcome to More Like This, a podcast from Netflix Q, the journal that celebrates the people, ideas, and process of creating great entertainment. I'm Krista Smith. I've spent over 20 years interviewing some of the biggest names in Hollywood. And on this show, I'm bringing you fresh new perspectives from across the entertainment industry with the kind of access only Netflix can offer. But I won't be doing it alone. I get to collaborate with some of the best writers, interviewers, and experts in the business. Many of us first met this week's co-host in 2005 as the gentle and reserved Jane Bennett, opposite Kira Knightley's Elizabeth and Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice. Since then, her versatility as an actor has been on constant display. We've seen her flourish in An Education, star opposite Tom Cruise in Jack Reacher, And then there's her Oscar-nominated performance in David Fincher's Gone Girl, and much more in between. Fast forward to today. She thrills as the cold-blooded and deceitful con artist Marla Grayson in the black comedy I Care A Lot. Let's face it, in any role she plays, we can't take our eyes off her. Please welcome to our show, Rosamund Pike. Rosmond Pike, it's so great to see you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on the show and talk to you and get stuck into lots of things, I think. And let me just say congratulations on the Golden Globe nomination for this film, I Care A Lot. It's very exciting. And all that stuff, even though it seems in a moment it can be frivolous, it's very important, and it's a great acknowledgement for... You in this role in particular and just for your career in general, I've always loved watching you on screen. So congratulations for that.
1: It was, a, it was a total surprise. You know, I didn't know the spirit in which anyone would take this movie. I hoped that it would be a movie that would be right for the times, you know, give a distinct and different flavor to this sort of turbulent year we've lived through. And um, and then, you know, to receive the nomination just as we're about to release it was just Amazing.
0: So exciting. Um, and we're going to talk about the film and it's called I Care A Lot uh, a little bit later on in the show. But I wanted to know what have you been doing during this crazy year we've been living and, and how have you been getting through the quarantine? And what have you been reading anything interesting, watching anything interesting? Like what, what's been going on in your life?
1: The year has been getting to know this new this city that I now call home, which is Prague. And Prague has been a wonderful home from home it's a very curious thing to explore a city in the state that it was sort of almost meant to be seen the state the state that you could never see it and if you came as a tourist to Prague you'd never see it empty and so for those early weeks you know it, it was quite a privilege to go out and roam the deserted streets and see all these sort of statues reclaiming the city and
0: can I ask what are you doing in Prague are you working in Prague or did you relocate there
1: well, both. I, I I started working on an Amazon show called The Wheel of Time. And at first I thought about whether I could, because it's close to London, whether I could work here and fly home. And then, you know, I thought, let's take everyone on a on a new adventure at this point of our lives. And so we relocated here. You know, we're we're marooned without sort of close friends. But we've made friends, as you do, and certainly fallen in love with the city. And found, you know, a, a thing that Prague has that London doesn't have is still these kind of wonderful communal areas of unmonetized space. You know, spaces that are used for skate parks and bike parks and venues, which, of course, are empty, but sort of outdoor art spaces and all kinds of things that it, it London, you know, would have had and now doesn't really have anymore because money got in the way. But, yes, it's a very creative place. I felt very creative here. And, of course, you you, you know, like anyone, I'm sure like you, you know, you try and find an outlet you know, I started learning poems and putting them on Instagram, and just just a way of kind of still expressing. Or I collaborated with a dancer friend on a on a dance piece that we've done all remotely. You know, someone's done a libretto, someone's done music, I've done the voice, she's choreographed remotely, and you know that that's been fun. And I've I feel like I want to know what you've been up to. <laughs> I feel like you know, if you become a sort of market gardener or. Uh, <laughs> I... Written a novel <laughs> <laughs>
0: Not quite. I mean, my hands have been full with with. I have two boys, so the, the homeschooling really is like all hands on deck. And then other than that, I really have found, I mean, this is going to sound such like the company line, but I have found a lot of refuge in the Netflix content and whether it's watching Ozark or The Crown or The Tiger King or uh, the latest in Queen's Gambit. I've kind of found myself having all of this like extra time to sit with things because we're not running and dashing everywhere and, and, and living these kind of hectic lives. We recently discovered Lupin and loved it. You know, even with I, I watched it with the subtitles. It was fantastic.
1: The ones we watched together were The Queen's Gambit, like you said, which I just thought was a masterpiece, really. I thought, you know, this is the finest writing and production values and acting. And it's just, you know... Excellent across the board. I felt so happy to see Anya Taylor-Joy, who was my daughter in in *Radioactive*, who played the remarkable Irene Curie, <laughs> uh, daughter of Marie Curie. Um, so it was just I thought she was phenomenal in it, and I also loved *Unorthodox*. Did you mm, watch *Unorthodox*? Yes,
0: loved it. Shira Haas, I, she was quite the discovery, I thought as well. Um,
1: fantastic that she was nominated for a Globe as well. Um, I thought the whole company was beautiful in that, and she was completely stunning but equally the boys I mean equally the you know the complexity of the male roles in that I mean I know we're all focusing on the complex female roles but you know actually when you see men male roles that are complex in a different way than we've historically seen like I felt both those male characters you know morally ambivalent mm-hmm. the cousin and the husband with all his sort of innocence and sweetness and yet rigidity I thought I thought they were complex male roles of the like i hadn't seen for a long time mm-hmm. and i've also been loving the crown but i'm out of date i've only just caught up with season three so
0: uh. <laughs> well brace yourself it's excellent it's so much fun and Gillian anderson is thatcher is great there's a lot of good new actors peppered throughout yeah. it's, it's really it's superb I, I love that series i think probably all in that's my my favorite go-to I also just had not too long ago interviewed Gary Oldman for Mank, which is David Fincher's latest film about Herman J. Mankiewicz and, and the kind of writing of Citizen Kane and that world in Hollywood during that era. It's, it's I think, a masterpiece. Has your path ever crossed with Gary's before, just in, in terms of being in London? And
1: You did, uh, because I was filming Seven Days in Entebbe, at Ealing Studios, and um, we'd film most of it in Malta. And then we moved to Ealing, and in the next door soundstage, Gary was filming *The Darkest Hour*, and they uh, it was being directed by Joe Wright. And he invited me across to, you know, come and say hi. And and I got to spend a couple of hours watching Gary work. And and I, I was very hesitant to to meet him because I, I thought if he was involved in a role like that, he definitely wouldn't want. I mean, I thought I wouldn't want a strange other actor to come and and sort of interrupt the process. But Joe said, oh, no, that's not how Gary works. He's, he's, he's completely kind of at ease and able to just switch right out of it and then just switch right back in. And that's the kind of magic of him, which I thought was amazing. So I got to see that incredible makeup that he had up mm. close. I mean, it was unreal. It was, I, you just couldn't see where Gary ended and, and the prosthetics began. It was the most extraordinary work. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, he went on to to get the Oscar for that performance, uh, which was incredible I mean, you think about it. And interestingly enough, he talks in the interview about not having any makeup and how he was most terrified of that because he likes as an actor to kind of hide behind a nose or some kind of prosthetic or a hat or a thing. And and Fincher specifically didn't want any kind of any kind of look to try to emulate what Mank was. He just wanted him to be the essence of of that performance person and and not have it
1: you, you brought that out in in the in the interview that i saw and 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 you got you drew fincher on the same subject and and he ended up saying you know i want that quality that you know an actor has that you can't beat out of them with a tire iron <laughs> and of course i listened to that and i thought hmm oh, you know what was that quality in me <laughs> you beat out with a tire iron and then i thought actually i don't think i want to know the answer to it <laughs>
0: All right, let's have a listen to uh, my chat with Gary Oldman. I caught up with the Academy Award winner to discuss his expansive career and how it prepared him for his brilliant Golden Globe-nominated performance as Herman J. Mankiewicz in Mank. Thank you so much for joining me. That's okay. Happy
2: to <laughs> Happy to
0: do it. So I wanted to go back to when you first heard about this movie and, you know, how this movie first came to you and what, what your reaction was when you opened that script and read it.
2: Initially, obviously, I was very excited before I'd read the script because it ticked a box of mine. I've worked with some wonderful directors over the years, and David was certainly on that list. And then to just read this glorious Writing by his by his dad, Jack Fincher, and not only that he's lying down, so he's in bed for most of it. So how how, how exciting could I make that? But uh, it was one of the really one of the best scripts I I, I had read in a, in a long time, and I was just thrilled to be um, to be asked to do it. I'm very, I was very thrilled, very honoured.
0: Mm. I mean, obviously, Herman Mankiewicz is a brilliant man, had a lot of turmoil. A lo- yeah. <laughs> Did you know about
2: him before you had read the script? I, I really was more, I was more aware of Joseph, the brother, just because of his achievements. All About Eve is one of the great all-time screenplays and, and, and films. And vaguely knew that, that, you know, there was that, that connection with Wells and that he had done a bit of sort of script doctoring and a bit of writing for the Marx Brothers. But um, basically, it was was a a blank canvas to me. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, you've said, and I love this, uh, so I hope it's true. (laughs) (laughs) You've talked about how acting isn't necessarily an intellectual pursuit, but it's more Mm. of a sensation and a feeling. And I wonder, what was that for you, with this character with with Mank what was that sensation that um, got you to this
2: character that doorway you know the process is it's all still a bit of a mystery there's a certain obviously there's a certain amount of of work of head work that you need to do with with a character like this because there is a, there's i mean there's quite a bit of information out there on, on him and there are uh, there's no footage of him tiny tiny little cameo he did in an early movie which doesn't really tell you very much and it's all anecdotal you know he said this he said that he did this he did that so there's that work that you you know you ga- you, you ga- gather the information as 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 much as you can but I've also said that you could do you know if you were playing Hamlet you could read every book there is on on Hamlet you could holiday in Denmark and whatever you know whatever kind of work you would do in that respect or research I guess as it's called um I've always said you could do all of that But on opening night, that won't help you stand there and say to be or not to be. You know, Mank was an alcoholic, and uh, I've been in recovery now for almost 24 years. Um, But I do remember what it was like. So in that respect, I could bring a lot to the party because you have to sort of get inside not only a brilliant mind, but a drunk mind, and that to me was very obvious from from what I was sort of researching or looking at. You see it in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he turns on everyone who wants to help him. You know, drunks want an enemy. They need a they need a villain. He he really, he really had some villains there. It's a lot of my own experience, really, that I gave that, that, that I, I brought with me here's the other interesting thing i don't really think i could have been a convincing Churchill without the prosthetics david did not want any any tricks he didn't want anything he didn't want a wig he didn't want a false nose he didn't want false teeth he said to me i want you to be as naked as you have ever ever been and I do like, you know, I like a nose or a pair of glasses to hide behind. <laughs> <laughs> so that was incredibly challenging and very daunting. And I resisted it at first. And it wasn't until I started to kind of move and breathe in, 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 the, in the language, and in, in the script and in the clothes and the shoes that I realized I thought, you know, Dave was right. I haven't really answered your question about how do you get into it. (laughs) Well, specifically, I
0: wanted to know what that moment was when you've got, oh, I've got Mank. This is it. This is my, this is the essence of of him.
2: I think with this one that really got the the ball rolling was was finding the voice. Now, there's no recording of Mank but there's plenty of recordings of Joe Mankowitz And I thought to myself, you know, the apple probably isn't fall far from the tree. So that was what I started to work on. That, that real dry delivery, that sort of throwaway delivery in it, it, with the voice of joseph mankowitz and that's kind of where i started you know you've got the, ba- the, the the basic root sound and timbre from joe and then you add a bit of smoking and some whiskey uh, or a lot of whiskey on top of that voice and uh you give it a pinch of uh, burgess meredith hmm. and um you uh you know, you you have Mank. I hope. I hope. <laughs> Definitely,
0: you have Mank, and in Mank, it's just he's so funny and he's so alive. That Gary, you made him so alive in a bed with with a body cast, essentially. That's what I thought was so
2: incredible. You know, Orson awesome Welles described him, who loved him dearly, loved Mank dearly, said. That he was the perfect monument to uh, self-destruction. He he embodied the the very essence of it, and was very bitter, and inc- and of course incredibly funny, and Wells said. That when that bitterness or you know, that that vile bile wasn't aimed at you. He said he was he he was the funniest man on the earth. Now some people have said, going back to the old days at the, around the you know the Algonquin table in the early days, that even when even when that Bible was 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 aimed at you, he was so funny that you would laugh in spite of yourself.
0: I have no trouble believing that. <laughs> I think what's also very interesting about your career, and I'm going to transition a little bit here because it is kind of staggering when I went back. There's so many performances, and and I can get a little to that a little bit later. But the the directors you've worked with from Christopher Nolan to Francis Ford Coppola, Soderbergh, Quaron, Oliver Stone, Tony Scott, uh, yeah. Joe Wright. I mean, so many of them. And earlier you mentioned wanting to work with David Fincher. And I, and I want you to talk about that a little bit. Like, what are the characteristics that make it a Fincher film? What's the experience with David Fincher?
2: I mean, he knew exactly how he wanted it to look and sound from, from the starting pistol. So you don't have any worries or doubts that he's going to capture the period. But the thing that surprised me was the work that we did on the text in rehearsal. Analyzing every scene, sometimes going over just a word, you know, what's, oh, we need to change that. That needs a little bit more sizzle. What's a, what's a good phrase? What's a good word? That's not, that doesn't feel right. Um, what, what, what's, the, what, what's the motivation here? What, do, now, what does Mank want from the scene? What does Marion want from him here? The, the, just the work on the character, characterization on what we're saying. And does the story make sense? And so that was sort of uh, surprising to me.
0: Uh, I had talked to Tom Pelfrey earlier uh, and he just talked about how much he loved <laughs> uh, being able to do scene after scene, you know, take after take after take, because Fincher obviously is is a perfectionist.
2: Yeah, he will not do like takes. I don't I, sort of just un- unnecessarily just doing take after take after mm. take after take for the sake of it. You know, sometimes we, we walked away from things and he said, I, I, I've got it. Here's the wonderful thing about having the opportunity to do many takes is you, you really start to live in the word. You, you really, well, let's put it this way. I've always thought it was crazy that um, a production would spend millions and millions of dollars on an elaborate set, spend millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars on costume, mm. and then we would get there in front of the camera and we'd have two or three takes and then we'd move on. I've been in many situations like that, and and it puzzles me. Now, I understand that there are budgetary reasons why you you can't just do endless takes, but when you look around you sometimes at these sets and these costumes and you think, my word, look at the props, look at the clothes, look at, God, this Mm -hmm. is marvellous, and then you get two bites of the apple and you're moving on.
0: Gary this well, has I, been an yeah. absolute pleasure. Thank you so much yeah. for your time and your incredible performances in thank you. all the films that I've seen and in most recently in Mank. It's it's uh, just a pure delight. So thank you Well, it's
2: lovely speaking with you and I'm 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 thrilled that you like it.
0: To hear my full interview with Gary Oldman, as well as more interviews with the cast of Mank, go to Present Company, wherever you get your podcasts. And for an even deeper dive on the making of Mank, listen to our recent Spotlight episode. Okay, Rosman, let's talk about I Care A Lot. It's dropping on Netflix this Friday on February 19th. I think audiences are just, they're going to flip out. When, when this drops on the platform. It got great reviews. And again, you were at the center of those positive reviews for your performance. I can't really remember a time when I've seen the female protagonists <laughs> as so morally bankrupt in such a delicious way that they're driving every aspect of this narrative. And it has this tone of of a black comedy, but yet it's a thriller. But it was very real to me. And I love this character. She's amazing, right? Marla Grayson, with just the physicality of her and then the interior life of her. It was just like a perfect marriage Uh And I just want to ask you, first and foremost, what were your thoughts when you first got
1: this script? Well, the first time I read the script, I I mean, I just thought I have never met a character like this. I've never had the privilege to read one on the page. I haven't been so excited by a character I've read for years. I think uh, my agent sent it to me, and it wasn't accompanied by an offer or anything like that. I mean, it was just, you know... Read this script, what do you think of it? And I read it and I thought, well, I just have to write to the writer and say, you know, I mean, I've no idea whether I will ever have any involvement with this, but I have to say, this is the most exciting script I've read for years. The idea of somebody who so convinces as a responsible, upstanding citizen who takes care of the elderly and takes on this difficult job of caring for um, a family's loved one when perhaps, you know, the rest of the family members live out of state and she. Is the kind of go between between facilitating doctors' visits and you know care services and all of that. And meanwhile, you know she doesn't care in the slightest and is only using it all to her advantage. You know, paying herself some vastly inflated hourly rate and um, with a with a with an ultimate plan to move the elderly person into a care home, taking commission from the care home director and selling off. The assets while they remain in care for the rest of their life. I mean, it's it's a scheme that just you're dismayed to discover. And yet the real villain of the piece is the system that allows her to win. I think, mm-hmm. you know, she sees a uh, an inefficiency in the system that she exploits for all it's worth. And I met Jay Blakeson, the writer. We got on really well. I think he had, you know, really been a fan of Gone Girl. But, you know, it was several months before the film came to me as an offer. And so that, you know, one presumes that it was offered to other people in the meantime. <laughs> you know, it's the only conclusion you can draw. But, you know, I've never been frightened of being, you know, second choice or third choice, because it, it I, I think if you, if you get sort of all prideful about that, then you can miss out on an opportunity. Ultimately, when it comes to you, it's yours. And, you know, then it's up to you to make what you can of it. Well, all the Physical choices—the stuff about
0: your hair—I was looking at that like how, just as as the actress, was that having to be razor sharp every day? Was the hair was the hair person just cutting that perfect edge? I mean, you could—it it was just sublime, and the color of yellow and the shoulder pads and just—it was like this armor that she had to do what she did it was like this is my character that I'm building that is this person and it's flawless and it's pristine and it it's looks powerful just as an actress how kind of fun was that to get in and put all that on with all those little details all the way down
1: I think you know you build it and I knew for quite a while you know I probably knew I was playing Marla in January and we started filming in July and so there was plenty of time to assimilate her. I mean, in the in the script, Jay writes, describes her as um, as having raven-coloured hair, which I know he said so that a woman of any ethnicity could read herself into the role. You know, that's how he works. And so I asked him if he wanted her to have dark hair and we discussed all kinds of options. And at one stage we were thinking about her being a redhead and, and then, you know, Jay was a bit worried about the sort of of sort of fiery redhead as not taking away from Marla as he'd written her. So he, he felt that the blonde would be more iconic with the colour palette and the sort of look for the film that he created. And then, you know, I have a friend who, who also cut my hair in Gone Girl, actually, and cut that sort of angle bob that Amy comes back with after her time with uh, Desi. <laughs> um and so I called upon her again and I said, you know, we need something fantastic again. And I had had this idea of a, um, of a very straight Bob. I'd sort of come to me. I'd been in Sweden in, earlier in the year and I'd seen this magazine article and, I was, and it just struck me. And I thought, That's, there's Marla, even though this was a dark-haired girl. And then Tina got the exact length and, and then Laurie Gidra, who was our hair person, perfectly managed it through the shooting of the film so but but all of that is built up so you know the color palette those suits the um, amazing dresses all of that that's not written into the script that emerges as you start to find the character her sunglasses her vape it all gets detailed in but it's you know as you say you know it's all a performance isn't it it's all exterior show. Mm-hmm. There's some
0: excellent action scenes in this. Uh, and one in particular, I don't want to give it away, but it, it's also an incredibly physical performance. One of the things is there's a brilliant series of scenes, but the, the one that kind of culminates with you and Diane Weist is, is pretty magnificent. And as an actress, obviously, you, you've seen her work before. She is a legend in her, in her time. It is Diane Weist. How was that working with her in this film?
1: For start, I was very honoured that she wanted to do it. And she was so surprising and her delivery was so unexpected. And, you know, she had this sort of wonderful kind of humorous robustness to the way she played the victim, you know, which didn't make it easy for Marla. And I think that was true across the board with all the other actors, is Marla's game was raised because of her opponents, really, in every scene. And each of those actors... You know, obviously, you had to do the lines they were given, but but they made it. They made the negotiation tricky mm-hmm. by being surprising and original and deft with their delivery, and all of that makes it fun. You know, it really is fun.
0: Yeah, it's a great cast, I should say. Esa Gonzalez, Chris Messina, Peter Dinklage. I mean, everywhere you kind of turn, there there's a a fabulous actor coming coming on screen whether it's throughout the film or just in in one you have one great scene i'm thinking with with christmas scene in particular <laughs> in the office it's terrific as as an actress reading reading this kind of character and on the page and bringing it to life do you feel that as As women, as we're talking about like these fully rounded out women, we're all trying to make it better. We're all trying to get these these characters, even if they're larger than life, especially these female characters, more complex, more, you know, not always playing to type. Right. So for you as an actress, you've had it actually kind of an exceptional run at this. I mean, how do you how do you feel we're doing out there in the world in Hollywood when you when you see something like this and you star in something like this and you get nominated for something like this?
1: You know, look at Carrie Mulligan being so brilliant in Promising Young Woman. It's not the same story and it's not the same sort of character at all, but uh, it, it does have the common thread of a woman convincingly playing something she's not, <laughs> you know, before she turns and says, hey, hang on a minute, you know. And I think this notion, which might have started with Gone Girl, actually, because I think one of the things that people were so arrested by in Gone Girl was the idea that some of these things that they like in women could be performance, you know, the cool girl. Is this whole thing a charade? Is the whole happy-go-lucky, you know, hanging with the boys, drinking beer? Is that for every woman? Is that a charade? No, of course not. But are there some who, who play cooler than they are? Yeah, Oh, yeah, of course there are. You know, and that was what Gillian Flynn tapped into so eloquently and bitingly. And David completely got that when he was shooting it. And I think since then, that performative aspect of certain women has come to the fore in film. It's been enjoyed. And, and I think it's unsettling to people and they're startled by it. And, and I think it's fun to play with the tropes of femininity. You know, Marla you know, can, can present herself as very compassionate and caring and honour-bound and dutiful. And then, you know, she just turns and the smile goes and she deadens and it's all back to the sort of cruel business of <laughs> getting rich off at other people's expense, you know. And I think that's what people find frightening. You know, people tell me, you really scared me in that movie, Gone Girl, and, and people have said that about this, you really scare me. And I think it's to do with the fact that they're taken in or they could be taken in, or they fear that they could be taken in by a woman like that. <laughs> yeah, two thousand and nineteen, there was a screening at the BFI, and I introduced it and hosted an evening. And already, the way that our world has moved on in terms of reaction and you know appetite for people controlling their own media, you know through social media, already, there's a sort of new resonance to Amy's everything she does, you know, she's almost more brilliant in light of what we now know and, and, and more terrible, more diabolical because we can, we understand that fiddling and altering of playing with uh, image that she was doing so artfully all the way back then that people now do is sort of run of the mill day to day uh, exercises on social media all the time, you know, mm-hmm. performing themselves, performing versions of themselves. You know, she was, brilliantly setting herself up as the victim. You know, Amy Dunn is a killer, right? I mean, Amy Dunn murders someone. I mean, Marla doesn't kill anybody. You could say that she prefers the slow death approach. I mean, that taking someone's freedom away is sort of virtually killing them, you know, which is what she does. But she also nearly gets killed herself. There's a sort of grit to Marla that I think Amy doesn't have. I mean, I think if Amy had been subjected to what Marla is subjected to, I'm not sure she would have survived. I mean, if you think about Amy and Gone girl when she's mugged by those two um, chances out in the Ozarks, she has this indignation that anybody should have tried to mug her. You know, she's got that sort of entitled sort of rich girl thing, which Marla doesn't have
0: at all. No, that that's what's so thrilling about this character. She's just so scrappy. And you realize she's, it's kind of that American dream. I'm going to go out and get mine. And, you know, if not, why not me? You know, if not me, someone else. And that's what I love about the movie at the pace of the movie is because everywhere you turn, someone else is something that they're not. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. It's a great film. And, uh, and I'm so happy for you. And it's, you've had such an interesting career. When I first met you, you were, you know, know, in the corset is is Jane Bennett perfection, you know, the ideal in Pride and Prejudice. And and I think about all the different parts that you've played throughout and your your love of it. It feels like I've always, I've watched your joy throughout your career. But it's interesting to me that I was reading up and I didn't realize that you know, when you had started out, you had tried to get into some drama schools and you didn't end up getting in. So you had failure kind of at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And I would just like for you to talk a little bit about that, about what it was that like for you to then you, you went to college and and kind of got back into drama through, through university. But for you, how has that kind of propelled your career? Has it at all? And, And what kind of mark did it have on you?
1: I think, you know, they can, they can knock you down these schools by rejection but they can't knock it out of you if if you sort of fundamentally believe that that's what you are you know i think with acting for me it wasn't a desire it wasn't something i wanted to do it was something i had to do you know it it sort of can make me emotional saying it but but you know i do know how fortunate i am to be getting these roles you know i do know that (laughs) and i sort of marvel at it still And it's come through hard work and it's come through rejection. And, you know, when you're 19 and the thing you want to do is be at drama school and have that seal of approval and be sort of told that, yes, you know, you qualify, you're right, you can do this. And, And to be told you can't and we don't want you and you're not right for us, you know, that feels like a horrible dismissal from a club you want to be part of. And it hurts, but well, it made me determined to succeed or or to find another way. And so I think that's why I found my own teachers along the way, you know, people who've really inspired me, whether it was Fincher or whether it was um, a dancer that I've been working with quite a lot recently. I did a music video for Massive Attack and we worked together on that. And I've consulted her about many things since, in terms of physicality and roles and, you know, just exploring my body and all these things that you might have got as a basic training at drama school, I suppose. I mean, rejection, it does, it, you know, it's, it does suck, but it does make you, it can give you metal, I think. And I think it should be an inspiring thing for aspiring actors to hear really.
0: I I can't remember w- at what point I was interviewing you for, for whatever movie you were doing, but in our conversation you had imparted something to me that I think about all the time when you were just like one of the ways sometimes you get through a day is just by looking up. And and maybe you were on the street in London and just by looking up. And so often, and here I am in a a podcast studio looking up, but I will go outside and be like, God, I got to remember to just look up because so many of us have like straight ahead, what's right in front of me. And just that simple, Gesture of of looking up at the trees, looking up at the sky and the birds, or wherever you are—the city, the skyscrapers—the you know, just taking in the noise, the, the weather, the sound, the the visuals—is is so important about where you are, and it kind of informs you know your being in that in that moment. So I I always attribute that to you.
1: It's still absolutely something I stand by, and I take my children out in Prague, and I say you know, look up, and you find all these people. As I said at the beginning, the statues who are reclaiming the city, you find these people watching over you that you never knew were up there. You know, all these details on the buildings. And it came to me when I was at Oxford and I was having a hard time and I didn't really find myself there for a long time. And and then one day I came back and I thought, I'm just going to enjoy this city. And I started looking up and this whole other world opened up. I, it was like an overnight change. And I started to discover kind of secrets that I never knew were in the city and stories that little, you know, gargoyles that led me to find stories and led me to find literally secret doors in the walls that led to hidden gardens. I mean, all that sort of mystery that you would hope about, uh, resides in Oxford is is there for the finding, but you've got a look for it. Well, thank you so much for for coming
0: on the show and chatting a bit. I miss you. It was yes. great to to converse with you. And I love this movie. It's... People are going to love it.
1: Thanks, Krista. It's really nice to see you.
0: We're nearing the end of the show, and at the end of all my conversations, I always ask whomever I'm interviewing what advice they have for the next generation. You heard me speak with Gary Oldman earlier. Here are some of the wise words he had to share on the subject.
2: You can't be sort of interested in it or have a passing interest in it. It has to be everything. It's the air that you breathe. It's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning, and it's the last thing you think about when you go to bed. No shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. You've got to put the work in. I stumbled on an interview with Paul Newman, and he really had to work at it rather than it be a thing that was sort of intuitive. And he would look around him and he'd think, God, these people that could just sort of get up and do it. They just, it's just, it seems so easy for them. And he felt that he really did not have that. But really what he was saying was, I had shortcomings, I, knew, I, I recognized them, and I had to really work. I had to work harder than most people who had it intuitively. And and there's no substitute for it. That's, that's what I would say, that you must want it more, more than you want anything else. You've got to remain hopeful and optimistic. You can't think that you're going to you know you just sc- you'll go to drama school or go to uh, I don't know Juilliard and then you're going to come out and, and, and work in in Walmart you, you may for a while end up working in Walmart or driving a cab or waitressing or whatever what, whatever you end up doing but you can't you've got to have the attitude that You know, what do you want to do when you leave Juilliard? I want to be in a great play on Broadway. So you've got to keep, um, you you have to keep optimistic and grow a thick skin.
1: Hmm.
0: Great advice for life in general.
2: (laughs) I think, yes, you've got to grow a thick skin and remain optimistic. (laughs) I would say. (laughs)
0: That's our show. Mank is streaming on Netflix now. And I Care A Lot will be streaming starting February 19th. For more, head over to NetflixQ.com. That's Netflix, E.com. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share. And thank you for tuning in. Listen in next time for more like this.